Good morning, church. My name's Derek. We're going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood, will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The word of the Lord. Amen. And welcome. First Sunday of Advent. So today's about hope. Hope. As essential to life as air to the body water to a fish. That's how basic hope is. How often you find the word hopeless in suicide notes. And if it doesn't show up, you can read it in between every line. Take away our ability to hope, and you take away our ability to go on living. Advent and the gospel is all about hope. The hope of one who can come into the brokenness of our world and bring healing. But no place in Scripture is it said more beautifully than by the Apostle Peter. And I'd like us to say it together. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. It's not just enough for Peter to say Christ gives us hope. He coins this unique term. It's not just hope. It's a living hope. It has a life force in it. When the average person thinks about hope, we think of wishful thinking. Ask a person, uh, what's, your, uh, what's your retirement plan? And every once in a while, you'll hit on somebody that says, well, I hope to win the lottery. <laughs> you know? Cross your fingers kind of hope. What we really mean is, I wish, I wish. You can't build your life around that kind of hoping. When the Bible talks about hope, it's a very different thing. The Greek word for hope is not wishing. If all things go well, perhaps it'll turn out. Hope in the Bible is confident expectation. The hope of the gospel, the hope that Christ brings to our life is a hope that you build your life around. It's a hope that shapes your priorities, emboldens your decisions, and impacts both the minutia and the grand flow of your life. Once you expect something to happen, you plan for it. I was thinking about this, and um, I'm one of those people that does as much as I can around my, my own house. For those who've been in my kitchen, we redid our kitchen. It's, it's pretty good work when I, when I finally get around to it. But I kind of have to warm up to it. In our last house, poor Vit, we had a kitchen that was falling apart. And I did all these temporary repairs, you know, painting and glue and nailing up 
drawers that didn't work anymore. <laughs> it looked okay, but functionally it was a mess. And you know when I finally had a beautiful kitchen in that house? When we moved, when I had to sell it. You need something that's going to push you forward. So recently the project was painting our hallway all the way upstairs and also our newly devoted guest room, which Tommy moved out of once uh, Anna got married to David, and that's now our guest room. And the walls were just dying for repair and a paint job, and Vid had been asking for it, and finally my way of getting the project going was to get Tommy on it, plastering and repairing, and he did a great job. And the nice thing about plaster is that if you don't do it right the first time, you just sand it down and you try again. And Tommy's now ready to plaster anybody's house because of all the practice he got. And after Christmas, he's going to be looking for some gainful employment. So, uh, and then it sat that way, waiting for me. It just sat there. I'm happy to say that we have a freshly painted hallway and a beautifully freshly painted and appointed guest room. And the thing that finally got me off of my desk chair to do that was the expectation of my stepmom, Libby, coming to visit. My father passed away this summer. Uh, it had been uh, more than 10 years since they had been able to travel up this way. And we so wanted her to have a space that she was comfortable in. We expected her coming. And that motivated me. And I got more painting done in 36 hours than I have in 36 years. <laughs> Somehow I found the time, shaped my priorities around that expectation of welcoming Libby. And she had a great time. She loved her room. By the way, she loved you. Thank you for welcoming her. See, when you expect something, when you can count on it, when you're confident of it, it changes your priorities. That's what the hope that we have in Christ is meant to give us. And we're going to end up at this passage in 1 Peter. But in order to get here, we're going to back up through the Advent passages about hope. Derek already read where we're beginning today, Isaiah chapter 9. If you haven't turned there yet, turn there now. In the Advent scriptures, the primary symbolism of hope is darkness and light. It's light piercing the darkness. And Isaiah captures it. Let's read from verse 2 again. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. What a beautiful image. And of course, as Christians, we know that this is looking to Christ. John speaks about this in his first chapter of his gospel. The Word who was with God, who was God, that Word became flesh and dwelt a while among us. He goes on and refers to him as the one and only Son of God. John wants us to understand that what Isaiah saw centuries before, John witnessed in his lifetime fulfilled in Jesus. Besides calling him the Son, he says of him, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light that shined in darkness and the darkness could not extinguish it. Centuries earlier, Isaiah is pointing to the light that would shine. And indeed, not only was there immediate darkness, which we'll look at in a moment, but there would be four centuries of absolute 
darkness in terms of the revelation of God. 400 silent years preceding the the word of God being spoken through the person of Jesus Christ. Breaking, screaming through those centuries of silence as the word is made flesh. That's what Isaiah is talking about. But I want to explore what the darkness is. I skip the middle section of this passage. Verse 4, For as in the days of Midian's defeat... You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders. What's that about? What are the days of Midian's defeat? Isaiah is referring to a story of Gideon during the period of Judges. You can find the story in Judges chapter 6 and 7. How many of you know Gideon? The Midians were marauders who had come in because of Israel's disobedience. Let's go back to verse 1. In the past... He humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So Isaiah is going back to what has happened in the past, and he's warning Israel it's going to happen again. Same thing's going to happen because of your disobedience. So here's what you have to understand. When Isaiah is referring to the darkness into which the light of Christ would shine, he's referring to a darkness that is God's making and Israel's doing. When we think about darkness coming into light, the reason why we're attracted to this is because we think of ourselves as victims of a broken world, and we think of all the ways this dark world has impacted us negatively, and we long for Christ to come and deliver us from what all those bad and evil people have done to us. And there are certainly situations in life in which we're victims, but the real message of Advent and the coming of Christ is that he comes into your darkness and to my darkness. The darkness was of Israel's own making. In the past, I humbled them, but then he goes on and says, but in the future, he will honor Galilee once again, and that's the promise of the Christ who would come. So let's look at this story just quickly about what happened in Midian. He became a great man, but when we first see Gideon, he is hiding, taking what little wheat he's found, pounding out this wheat in a wine press, hiding. I picture him looking up for any Midianites to come, trying to get a little bit of bread. And it's in that setting that an angel appears to him and says, Hail, valiant warrior. I picture Gideon looking around and wondering who the angel's talking about. Ain't no valiant warriors here. Well, he was in God's eyes. God calls him to be the one that comes against not only Midian, but against the darkness that was at the heart of Israel. So here's the path to liberty for Israel. God asked Gideon first not to go to battle against Midian. He was asked to go and tear down the idols in the high places. And in this case, they were his father's idols because his father was the chief of that region. So brave soldier Gideon trumps up to the high place in the middle of the night under cover of darkness so no one could see him. And he takes down the altar to Baal and the pole to Asheroth. And as God instructed him, there he built an altar to God and offered a sacrifice. When the Israelites found out they were so mad 
They were so mad at this that they came and said, let's kill the guy that did this. And Gideon's father maybe showed some working of God in his heart because he said to the people, well, if Baal and Asheroth really are gods, let them deal with this themselves. <laughs> let them seek their own revenge. And of course, that doesn't happen. And that's the beginning of a great revival in Israel. Gideon amassing a great army and then God whittling down that army to just a few hundred men with the arm of God going against the horde of Midian and defeating them and bringing liberty. So when Isaiah says, as in the days of Midian, he's saying the path to this light shining in darkness is the same path. And it begins with tearing down the high places in our lives. You see, we all have them. The high places for us are our highest affections, our highest priorities, our greatest dreams and wishes. Sometimes they become idols all their own, and many times we devote those highest priorities to other things that we worship than God, and in doing that, we fall into our own darkness. And before light can come into that darkness, God calls us to tear down the high places. Re-establish them. Consecrate them out for God's glory and for God's purposes, just like Gideon did. He didn't just tear down the old idols. He established worship in that high place. It's interesting how Satan always wants the high places, isn't it? Several years ago, I, I was in Haiti, and we went to one of the highest places in Haiti, that on the very top were a set of caves that were one of the most sacred spots in the voodoo religion. In Haiti, make no mistake, voodoo is very real. Satan is very real. And the reason why people are devoted to it is because it works. And so we prayed on our way up to that high place. And we took the long trek up with others who were on their way up to worship. And we got there, and it was a filthy place. I remember standing there looking out over this incredibly beautiful view, and what went to my mind was Psalm 19.1, all creation declares the glory of God. You know, the high places were meant for us to stand and see creation and give glory to God, and I think it's why Satan goes after the high places. We were there for about an hour. We walked through all the caves, just filthy, dead animals, all sorts of spells on the walls, some for people to be killed, some for people to be wiped out. One wall was just a message board asking Satan to have his son in New York City give him a call. Just an odd collection. Ran across one man in one of the darker areas doing some very sick ritual, and one of the Haitian pastors said to them, what are you doing here? He said, I'm, I'm, I'm asking Satan for money. I need money. And the pastor right there in that cave led him to Christ. It was very powerful. So we're out there rejoicing with this new believer right in the heart of Satan's high place. And the high priest came up to us and began bugging us. And he said, when are you leaving? When are you leaving? Dan, my friend, said to him, why? And then Dan said, because nothing's working because we're here, right? And that was exactly right. Our presence, our claiming that place for Christ, destroyed the works of the devil in that place. Satan always goes for the high places. Goes for them in your life too. That's what Advent's about. Advent's about 
setting apart the high places of our life once again for God. Another couple of verses as we work through this theme of hope in Advent, hope related to the coming of Christ. Matthew chapter 3, go there with me. Matthew chapter 3, this is a fulfillment of another promise of a forerunner who would come and announce the coming of the Christ. And we see the fulfillment of it in John the Baptist. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Matthew is actually quoting again the prophet Isaiah and it's Isaiah 40. Say it with me. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Now, familiar passages. If you love Handel's Messiah, you know these passages are going to be sung and read all over the world by Christians in this month. But have you ever wondered what it means? Prepare in the wilderness a highway for our God. What, what does that mean? You see, in most wilderness places, there were narrow paths that barely allowed two oxen to pass with carts. The king was coming with an army that was going to march 10, 12 wide. And if you knew the king was coming, you did highway work. (laughs) You put up the orange cones in the wilderness, lowered the hills, made the crooked places straight. And you eliminated all the obstacles so the king with all of his glory could come in. That's what John's message was. Prepare the way of the Lord that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. He is the king of glory. He's saying broaden the path that Christ may come freely into our lives. This is Advent. This is what you do when you have a confident expectation of one who is coming. You prepare the way. We do not just celebrate Advent in order to look back and relive the longing for the first coming of Christ because like the children of Israel, we are also a people in waiting Advent is also about our being reminded that we have a promise that Christ will come. There will be another Advent. And that brings us full circle to the passage that we began with, 1 Peter chapter 3. And let's turn there together. I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with great care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Verses three through 12, and in the Greek, that's one sentence, one single flowing idea at the heart of which is this gift that is ours because of the gospel of a living hope. And now we understand the full meaning of what I think Peter's getting at. It's not just a living hope because it impacts our life and it's eternal in nature. It's a living hope because this hope has a name. It's Jesus Christ. He is our hope, Scripture says. That's why our hope's a living hope. And he shares three reasons why the gospel births this living, eternal hope that we can count on forever and around which we can shape all of our lives. And they're just three simple phrases. The gospel has given us a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Christ is that which allows us to heed Christ's own words, because I live, you also will live. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if he dies, yet shall he live. It's why we can face life's hardest tragedies. Loved ones who die untimely, or even the loss of those that have lived a good long life, and we still miss them in their parting. We can face those because Christ has been raised, and because if Christ has been raised, we will also be raised, see? That's a living hope. Nothing can put that to death because Christ is alive forevermore. Through the resurrection of Jesus into an inheritance kept in heaven. See, when you have a living hope in Christ, you don't have to put your hope in your banking account because banks fail. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, but there's FDIC insurance. (laughs) But governments fail. Pension plans go away when companies that we work for our whole life go under. People leave or just plain fall short like we all do. When we put our hope in anything in this side, that hope which is only meant to be put in Christ, we may as well be like those, as Paul says, who have no hope at all. It seems to be almost binary. There is either Christ and living hope, or there is no Christ and no hope. It's wishful thinking that we call hope here. Here, it's confident expectation, counting on Christ. And we can plan on it. We can count on Christ's care for our life. 
And we can count that that care will be there until heaven. And then death will be that much better for me to live as Christ. To die, that's gain. That's reward. And then third, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus into an inheritance kept in heaven until the coming of the salvation. There is a promise that Christ will come. That's a recurring theme in Peter's letters. One more passage. And let's go to his second epistle. Now, chapter 3, verse 3, going forward. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Even then, there were people who were saying, Jesus promised he'd come. Where is he? People's expectations were that God's timing was the same as their timing. And Peter had to remind them that God operates on an eternal clock, an eternal clock, and he's patient. His goal is that as many as possible, as many who are called, will come to salvation. And he's patiently waiting. And then he goes on and says this, but the day of the Lord will come. We can have confident expectation of this, like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid waste. Then he goes on, and I'm going to skip verse 11, and he goes on, he says, that day will bring about destruction of the heavens by fire, the elements will melt in the heat, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. This is what we are all waiting for. Last week, as we finished the book of Acts, I talked about Paul in chains and the gospel unhindered. We all live like Paul in chains. We're in a creation that's moaning and groaning, waiting for this coming of Christ. We live in mortal and corruptible flesh, waiting to take on immortality. We're waiting, we're longing for Christ to come, for his adventus. And he promises when he comes, he will make all things new. Now, I skipped the verse I want you most to focus on. Verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, since this will happen, he asks a very important question. What kind of people ought you to be? This is what Advent gives us the opportunity to ask. Since we are also waiting for Christ to come, what should be true of our lives? And then he answers it. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Same message. Rededicate the high places. Clear the rubble. 
widen the path of your heart so that God can come afresh and anew. Prepare the way of the Lord. I invite you into a season of personal renewal by making ready, by confessing sin, rededicating our priorities, taking personal inventory. Take time in this season to make ready for Christ to come afresh into our lives. How wonderful we get to celebrate communion today as we think about this theme. Because the way is cleared not just by our renouncing and confessing the sin, but by receiving forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And we know that was made possible because of his death on the cross, his body broken, his blood shed for us. And so let's prepare to come to the table of mercy. Let's bow our heads. Father, as we come to your table, what a gift this is. Because as often as we practice it, we return once again to the foot of the cross, the place where we all stand in equal need, equally guilty before you, but equally loved. And when we turn to you and receive your grace, we are equally forgiven, equally set free. We celebrate this today as we remember. In Jesus' name, amen.